in the screening context, you're looking for wide but shallow. You wanna, you wanna get people into the funnel for treatment so that they have the best treatment options available. But the treatment itself should then subsequently be personalized. It's like at that point, um, you need to go deep to figure out what is the best therapeutic to work for this individual patient. It'll be highly personalized. Um, could you upfront get a highly personalized screening test? Well, it'll, it probably won't end up uh, happening that way because the cost differential, it, it's easier to have a cheap screening test that's that's wide and shallow, um, and then uh, and then subsequently um, do additional testing that's narrow and deep um, to find the right personalized solution for that patient. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. As we increasingly move towards early detection of various cancers and disease, drug development companies have an opportunity to evaluate and adjust their strategies. There are several emerging technologies and new multimodal assays with increased performance and sensitivity being developed in this field, but there are also hurdles. In the case of blood tests, for example, circulating tumor cells in the blood may be one in millions, so these blood tests need to withstand extremely low detection rates. More research and advancements are needed to truly realize the potential of cancer screening tests. To talk about this, today we're here with Peter Manchez. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi everyone, um, my name is Dr. Peter Manchez. I am currently the CEO of Pacific Edge, a molecular diagnostics company based in Dunedin, New Zealand with lab operations in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I am a scientist by training and I have worked in the molecular diagnostics field for eight years in uh, developing clinical assays. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for joining us all the way from New Zealand. Uh, so let's do a little bit of level setting. Why are we talking about biomarkers? What is the importance of them? Why, why is this relevant in today's context? I think probably the, the number one um, element of this is the opportunity for non-invasive testing that can provide clinical utility information that you can't get by, with, with existing technologies, imaging, or other methods that, that require some kind of visualization or biopsies that are invasive for patients. So we have traditional chemistries, traditional assays. Why are we talking about molecular diagnostics? What is the gap that molecular diagnostics are trying to address? What are the limitations of more traditional assays? Yeah, so more traditional assays um, or, or imaging techniques typically are late indicators of the diseases that they uncover. I mean, if you uncover a disease at stage three, stage four cancer, for example, you know, that patient is already very sick and the treatment options available are usually, you know, quite aggressive uh, therapeutics uh, and it would be you know, highly desirable to have methods that can detect tumors before they are aggressive cancers. Um, and so molecular diagnostics, um, particularly gene expression or DNA markers are able to capture signals in blood and in urine very, very early. And the benefit is early detection and hopefully more, more treatment options. Absolutely. So the, 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 it, the earlier the detection, uh, the more treatment options there are available to the physician. Uh, so in terms of biomarker discovery, right, there obviously have, you mentioned gene expression, DNA markers, RNA markers. Uh, could we talk about the technology landscape? I, I know you're familiar with a lot of the, the uh, state-of-the-art genomics tools. In terms of the technology over the past 10, 20 years, how have the sequencing technologies evolved to provide more data around the genomics uh, or protein expression? 
Uh, so uh, probably on a number of different fronts. I mean, just the, the volume of data is probably the most obvious one. I mean, we're now able to generate more data cheaply um, in terms of sequencing data than we ever have been. Um, but the methodologies have changed as well. Um, you know, we're able to uh, localize expression patterns to certain areas of the cell with spatial sequencing. Um, we're able to, you know, to look at different splice variants of genes in terms of, of, of their biomarkers. And so it's not just about, um, you know, what's present in, in tumor tissue um, and, and normal tissue. Um, it's about what's present in a spatiotemporal sense as well. You briefly mentioned spatial genomics, which is putting XY coordinates on on genomic data, right? Expression data. Sounds like a lot of data. <laughs> how are companies, um, you know, how are biopharma diagnostic companies, et cetera, how are they dealing with this corpus of data, right? It's a lot of different data sources. How are they, how are they sort of addressing the informatics challenges there? The obvious answer at a technical level um, is, you know, is using cloud-based technologies, um, you know, where where companies themselves don't have to worry about the storage of those data. You 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 have everything in a remote environment that you can log into and run the algorithms that you develop in the environment where the data is. You move the algorithms to the data, and the data stays where it is in the cloud, um, so that you can you can analyze that. It's fairly simple and straightforward to store your data on an S3 bucket. For instance, what is the key advantage that a diagnostic company brings forth that that separates them from from other diagnostic companies? Yeah, so uh, it is about the algorithm and the sophistication of the algorithm in terms of its ability to differentiate between the tumor and the normal tissue um, at that stage of the algorithm development process. And a lot, a lot of that is not challenging uh, scientifically, um, and a lot of it comes down to the subsequent validation of the algorithm development as well, where you've, uh, you know, once you've developed the algorithm, you then need to prove how well it performs in a clinical setting by validating it on independent data sets, which again is more data. Um, and lots and lots of analyses that you have to run um, to be able to show that you not just have a, a working product, which is analytical validation, but you have to show that the product will work in clinical practice, which is clinical validation um, from prospective, prospectively recruited patients um, in your sample set um, to test that the algorithm that you've developed works. You as a diagnostic company um, have captured the data, you have your algorithm, you've spent the time and effort to classify cancer versus uh, benign, for instance, or various stages of cancer. You started alluding to being able to validate those. What does that look like? And more importantly, from an informatic perspective, how are you pulling in those data to then compare either um, retrospectively or prospectively. So the algorithm development or the classifier development can include uh, you know, a lot of character data alongside the molecular data um, that we capture for DNA or RNA or proteins. And character um, data, you mean phenotypic data? Phenotypic data from the patient. So, okay. you know, the perhaps the the date at which they, um, you know, they were diagnosed. You know, other uh, histopathological data um, from uh, from any biopsy samples can be included, at least in theory. Imaging data can be included, and you can actually have AI algorithms analyze imaging data and turn that into a score. There are a number of different phenotypic data uh, to help, uh, uh, you know, the build the algorithm. Um, but then subsequently, you then need to validate, like, how good is the algorithm that I've developed? So the the analytical validity of as the algorithm. As compared to what? <laughs> it, it, right. As, as So on a new data set. So you've developed an algorithm, you've optimized its performance characteristics, um, sensitivity, specificity, you know, for a particular 
purpose, you then, once you've developed it, you need to prove that it's going to work in the general population. So you need to take uh, an independent population um, to clinically validate the algorithm that you've developed it on. And the best ways to do this are, of course, with prospectively uh, sampled uh, clinical trials where you've recruited patients, you've um, assigned them randomly, um, and, uh, and, and then you can show that the algorithm that you've developed has performance characteristics in the general population that are still useful um, in clinical practice. Uh, and there is one step further than that, um, and that is to, of course, define a protocol and demonstrate the clinical utility um, uh, of a specific pathway uh, once you have a validated product. You mentioned general population. Cancer isn't specific to any one race or, or culture or background. How do you generalize your population such that you're capturing the diversity and make sure that it's sufficiently unique as well as encompassing? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. Um, of course, the larger the sample size, the more chance there is that you are protected against those kinds of effects and that you've sampled sufficient diversity. So making sure A, in your development data set, you've got good diversity and B, in your clinical validation data set that you've also got representative diversity. Um, but the way that we rely on this from a scientific perspective is, is randomization. So rather than, uh, than going to a single site and saying, hey, just give me every patient that comes in there, you, you, you use multiple sites. Um, and, and then you might say, give me your next 50 patients from multiple different sites. So there are things that you can do to try to minimize um, the, the effects of that while scaling the N um, in terms of the number of patients in your clinical study. So you briefly mentioned AI ML. How embracing is the diagnostic community in terms of uh, gathering the data required for that training model, that tra training data set, and then applying AI techniques to create your classifier, your model, as opposed to doing it, uh, I guess, more manually? Yeah, so uh, I mean, the, the community is completely open to using uh, machine learning and, and AI um, algorithms in, to, in classifier development. Um, the reality is in, uh, if, your if your underlying markers are simple, like you have a, a small number of DNA markers, the amount of artificial intelligence that you can apply to that to get a better result is minimal. Sure. Artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms start to play a role when you start combining DNA with RNA, uh, when you start adding in the character data, the phenotypic data that we were talking about before, and particularly when you start to use time series information um, as well. And so looking at historical diagnostic results from your, your own test uh, to see whether there is a trend uh, in the right direction or the wrong direction, um, artificial intelligence algorithms uh, play an increasing role when the underlying data is increasingly complex. Perfect segue into my next question, which is the transition between single markers, right? We're, we're all familiar with um, a small number. I, 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 I want to be cautious about not saying a single gene marker, but, but things like uh, BRCA1 and 2, EGFR, uh, BRAF, KRAS, et cetera, right? Kind of moving from single or limited number of uh, tumor biomarkers to more multimodal. Um, a, could you describe the, the necessity, kind of the limitations of looking at single or small number of genes? And then B, what's the process, right? So you have all this in information. Are you just feeding everything blindly to these AI 
you know, training models and, and kind of letting them derive what are the best predictors of or the best classifiers uh, for, for a particular outcome or, or what does that process look like? I mentioned, you know, as the, as the data complexity increases, the role of AI and machine learning, um, you know, it does increase. So as you go from one marker to multiple markers, and particularly when those types of markers change in their character, so from DNA uh, augmented by RNA or DNA SNPs to DNA methylation to uh, fragments, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, as you, uh, as you aggregate those kinds of data, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms play a, a greater and greater role. Um, in terms of like, you know, do we let it run run wild? You 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 kind of can in the uh, in the development stage. So in the development stage, we're basically asking the um, the algorithm to come up with the best possible classification, regardless of you know, how it gets there, um, to um, you know to distinguish between the tumor and the normal tissue. Um, but once you've done that and you've created what you think is- At the is, image level or at uh, the patient bioanalyte level? Uh, more at the analyte level. Um, and so once you've, once you've created a classifier that differentiates between two patient types, uh, the, the, the tumor and the normal, uh, you then want to, uh, you lock that algorithm for your validation. So at that point, um, you know, you've taken your best, uh, you've created what you think is the best algorithm, and then you try to validate that. If it falls over in validation, uh, you know, obviously then the algorithm development process wasn't very good. Um, but generally speaking, if you have, um, if you've allowed the AI algorithm or any algorithm to create an optimal solution um, in a heterogeneous data set, um, during development, it's going to work on a heterogeneous data set um, in in the validation phase when the algorithm itself is locked and no longer able to to learn. And I guess the inverse would also be true, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Absolutely. So if you yeah, if you picked a completely homogeneous uh, data set, it will you may be able you will be able to develop a very very good algorithm that classifies that da that homogeneous data set very very well, but that'll fail at validation because it won't be generalizable to the the general population. Got it. Um, so let, let's shift gears a bit. Uh, what does validation look like? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of scratching my head here. I know there was quite a bit of uh, change that happened at, at the USD, US FDA level where personalized genomics, um, you know, gene cell therapies were coming to market and the FDA didn't quite know how to manage the data how to evaluate that. Was it, did you have a similar experience or, or historically, was there a similar uh, hesitation or um, hurdles in terms of molecular diagnostics? I mean, there's definitely, there's always some hesitation with adopting new technologies, but I think that's why we put the kind of rigor that we do around the trials that we do. Um, and I'm a very firm believer um, that, that if you uh, essentially follow the rules of good clinical practice um, and uh, you, you are going to get um, meaningful validation uh, figures for sensitivity, specificity, NPV, PPV that tell you how to use this product in or this test in clinical practice. So the basis of this podcast is, is obviously around biopharma. What is the impact of multimodal biomarkers in relation to biopharma? Why, why is this useful? Why is this important? Why is this, why is this even relevant? Also, uh, probably the most important thing is, is that as uh, diagnostics improve their performance with uh, adding additional character data and multimodal um, molecular data, uh, the performance characteristics of the test are going to improve. This for pharmaceutical companies, 
um, provides uh, essentially the opportunity to more accurately predict which therapeutic might work for a patient or more accurately predict, uh, sorry, not predict, um, but measure the response to a therapeutic that's already been administrated. So response to therapy and prediction of therapeutic response. Over time. Uh, over time for a patient um, that's being treated. Those are, uh, those are, those are the ways that it, this is most directly related to uh, the pharmaceutical world. And, and as, as I understand it, uh, these multi multimodal biomarkers um, are also helping significantly with earlier detection, right? Not when a patient is presenting the actual symptoms, but, but hopefully uh, much, much earlier along. I mean, asymptomatic screening of patients um, and, and catching disease early is the number one thing that we can do um, to reduce um, the, uh, the Re mortality rates um, sure. and, and, and challenges for, for patients. So, um, so absolutely trying to figure out ways to, to detect cancer early um, or kidney disease early, um, you know, for example, uh, those are all uh, things that we really want to do um, as, as early as possible. And how does this impact drug development or treatment options? You know, having having earlier data, having you know patients that are screened earlier to 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 diagnose them with with cancer or any other number of disease. How does that help drive additional development of, of treatments? So I think probably the uh, it, in some sense it's quite an obvious recognition, um, but it's a very very important one. Is the way that diagnostics and pharmaceuticals are intertwined is uh, is actually critical. So diagnostics can inform which therapeutics will work, but they can also inform how effective a therapeutic was um, for a particular patient. So the dynamic between um, diagnostics and therapeutics is, is absolutely critical. And that's true in the development phase um, for the, the new therapeutic compounds that are coming out. Um, but also for you know for the validation of those compounds, and then in the actual um, treatment of patients. What does that look like in the future? Recently, there's been a lot of bad press around Theranos, for instance, right? Where where do you see diagnostics actually going, and and how long do you think it's going to take to get that one drop, all of your diagnostics sort of approach to to fruition? I mean, it is a uh, it's a very noble goal. Um, and I think over time, um, you know, we will trend in the direction of being able to detect for more diseases uh, simultaneously and early um, in routine screening processes. But at the moment, the kind of the next steps forward are still going to be looking for specific disease states um, and, and validating um, the performance of diagnostics um, for, for a specific population with a specific clinical pathway, with a specific drug recommendation. You know, those, those are the kinds of things that I think are going to be here for, for a substantial number of years. Again, hard to put a, a number on it, um, while the longer term goal will be to, you know, have routine screening for all individuals whenever they go see their uh, PCP. Um, you know, on an annual basis to see whether there are any diseases that have uh, uh, that have silently manifested or asymptomatically manifested um, that that uh, the that we should do something about. From, from a discovery standpoint, are there differences between early screening diagnostics versus companion diagnostics? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it, it basically the difference is the patient population that you that you study in the clinical trial. The discovery process for uh, in, in terms of algorithm development that will have a lot of similarities um, in terms of the process. But then how you validate it will be with a specific um, usage. Uh, sure, in mind treatment plan. and as a as a consequence you'll you'll work with a specific population like if you're trying to prescribe a therapy you're going to want your patient population will be sick patients if you're doing a screening diagnostic your population will be mostly healthy people sure um and uh, and of course it influences the size of the study that you'd need to run as well in a screening study you've got to do 10,000 20,000 100,000 um whereas if you because you're looking for a low incidence phenotype uh, or a low, low incidence disease state um whereas if you are um, you know, if you already have sick patients as your patient population, uh, you then you're just trying to determine um, the accuracy. Uh, or, the accuracy. Or, it, sure. it, so it's it, that part is different. Multimodal biomarkers. Uh, what does that look like from 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 like an actual diagnostic standpoint? Right. I wouldn't imagine that if you walk into a, a clinic, they they do a blood draw, for instance, that they're going to run that through a sequencer and and do a full genome right you know i would imagine that happened at the discovery phase where you're doing full genome or, or like a GWAS study for instance adding in some you know rna expression sequencing data right and and uh in addition to the standard analytes chemistries etc what what does that transition look like from doing deep full sequencing to something that's more akin to what a standard clinical lab might have yeah so uh, a great question. So, you know, in the discovery phase, the goal is to be as comprehensive as possible in trying to find the most informative biomarkers that you can. Sure. Um, and then how, how does that downsizing happen? Then you, uh, so, so once you have, um, once you've developed your algorithm, uh, you then want, uh, then it changes from being a problem of, you know, how comprehensive you need to be to being really a cost uh, issue. You want to be able to run these tests as as cheaply and as high volume as you can to meet the needs of the patient population. So it's a different problem that you're solving for, and as a consequence, you might use a different technology. So, for example, on the discovery side, so let's say let's say you're using um, whole genome sequencing or whole transcriptome sequencing to do a biomarker discovery. Um, and once you have those biomarkers, um, you might use you know, digital droplet PCR or, or qPCR as the way to, to, to get the signal in clinical routine in a clinical For lab. those specific markers that, that you've predetermined. Yes, for the, for the predetermined biomarkers. Got it. So it, it sounds like you're not trying, you're not deliberately trying to make these biomarkers overly complex. You're, you're trying to simplify them. Absolutely. And so for known disease states, this is the approach. There is an entire other area of diagnostics where you have a disease state and you don't know what it is. This patient is sick and you've got to try to solve the problem as it were. Um, this is for when you, for developing um, diagnostics for defined disease states um, to identify them as, as accurately and as affordably as possible. That leads me actually to the million dollar question, quite literally, which is reimbursement, right? I, I know that's a big deal. You're trying to downscale your, your highly sophisticated biomarkers, your multimodal biomarkers to something as sort of seemingly basic as digital, uh, digital PCR or qPCR, for instance. Um, how does that impact reimbursement and how do you approach uh, reimbursements. What have the big challenges been in terms of molecular diagnostics? Uh, reimbursement typically uh, focuses on the strength of the clinical evidence that you have supporting the test. 
Um, and and not necessarily the complexity of that biomarker. Not necessarily. Uh, there are so there are two different. Uh, actually, there are three components to the reimbursement proce uh, process: coding, coverage, and pricing. So coding is really just an application. You have to show that your test is in clinical use. Um, coverage is the complex one that relies on clinical data to decide. You know, should Medicare or any other payer actually pay for this test? Do, sure. Does the does the clinical evidence support Medicare paying for this test? And then the third is pricing. And I think your your question speaks more to the pricing question. If it is a very expensive assay to run, you know, it, we're going to need to be paid more for that test. Um, otherwise, it's not a justifiable business model. Sure. Um, but at the same time, a, a, a commercial company is looking for ways to reduce costs. So given a given an agreed reimbursement, you know, they can try to make more margin on that. Um, uh, so all of all of those factors are in play. And I would say the you know the 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 reduction in complexity towards things that can run routinely in clinical labs is driven more by the pricing question, um, whereas the clinical um, evidence is directed more at the coverage um, requirement for reimbursement. Got it. Got it. Let, let me go back to a previous question. Um, so we've been obviously talking about multimodal biomarkers. What does the future look like of, of these biomarkers? How uh, how ubiquitous, how universal do you think early screenings will be? How routine do you think they will be? And, and how long do you think it will take for us to get there? So, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I think a lot of this might be dictated, um, you know, by cultural norms um, of different societies. And, uh, you know, if I think really far into the future, you know, uh, different countries might make dif different decisions about how this is practiced. But there are already initiatives and have been for, for many years um, initiatives to to sequence um, individuals at birth and and to have knowledge of their genome at birth and of course a lot of diseases that people that manifest during someone's life are known by their their genome at birth. Others are required during their lifetime. For example, bladder cancer and lung cancer from smoking, um, and and so you know those you might have to test on an annual basis uh, sure. over a certain age. You know we already have screening tests uh, for prostate cancer um, and for colorectal cancer that are that are fairly uh, widely used, and uh, you know those are recommended over a certain age. Um, right. uh, but you know there may be you know it, it, you, if you want to capture a hundred percent of people affected by a particular disease condition, you'd have to make the age at which you start testing very, very low. low right. But then that becomes very expensive for the system and unjustified. So, uh, and again, different countries and different, uh, different areas will develop different levels at which they set that, but the principles will be the same. Um, you know, when, when uh, the population is deemed to be at a sufficient level of risk, you would start routine testing um, for either individual cancers um, and individual diseases or multiple all at once, um, which I think is the direction that we're ultimately heading. So earlier on, you mentioned the cost of sequencing significantly dropping, right? Uh, it, it's becoming more of a commodity than, 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 uh, than a high stakes sort of uh, research tool. What do you think is going to drive that universal availability of diagno comprehensive diagnostics for early detection, uh, either from a technology standpoint or a scientific standpoint, AI, ML, like w w what do you think is actually going to drive that in, in, the, in the future? 
so some of it will be the technology component, just like what is actually possible. Um, and we'll be able to say, hey, look at this technology. We really need this. Um, as some of it will be the reimbursement landscape. Some of it, some of it might even be political um, lobbying efforts to, to, to show, hey, look what this technology can actually do for this patient population. Um, so it's a combination of, yeah, probably like uh, political um, technology and, and the gathering of, of clinical evidence um, to demonstrate to all of the different stakeholders that this is really what we should be doing. Is there the opportunity to go back and retrospectively looking, look at the performance of an algorithm or the performance of your biomarkers to tweak it, to evolve it? Because these things, you know, as your corpus of data increase, you have the opportunity to then make improvements, whether they're marginal or, or significant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's in a, in a regulated environment, it's actually part of your post-market surveillance is that you would be routinely checking that your algorithm still works. Um, and you would do, um, you know, just out of best practice, you would check, um, you, you would check to see whether any new algorithmic improvements could get you better data. And then that would be behind a, a V2.0 um, for your algorithm that would come out. And as this, you know, your, your sample size, your N increases, right? You, you make, you make these, um, diagnostics, early, early screening diagnostics, more available, more universal in, in your mind, uh, and, and, and this is purely speculation or prediction. Do you think it will go to more towards universal screening biomarkers, or do you think it's going to go more towards personalized where it, it's wide and shallow versus narrow and deep yeah so uh, actually a great question and i think um it, it's probably going to be both but in different contexts so in the screening context you're looking for wide but shallow you want to you want to get people into the funnel for treatment so that they have the best treatment options available but the treatment itself should then subsequently be personalized it's like at that point um you need to go deep to figure out what is the best therapeutic to work for this individual patient it'll be highly personalized um, could you upfront get a highly personalized screening test well it'll, it probably won't end up uh, happening that way because the cost differential it, it's easier to have a cheap screening test that's that's wide and shallow um, and then uh, and then subsequently um, do additional testing that's narrow and deep um, to find the right personalized solution for that patient thank you for listening to bio radio i'd like to thank pete for being our guest today talking about next generation multimodal biomarkers i'd also like to thank the listeners to join the conversation visit our blog biorad.io and don't forget to subscribe on apple podcast or spotify this podcast is an original creation of BioRad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.